0: Good morning, WellSpringers. I am Natalie Violet Rakoff. My family has been attending WellSpring for two years and joined officially as members last November. I would describe myself as a dreamer, a thinker, and a leader. It's a lot to think about what I want to do with this one wild and precious life when I'm only nine years old. I see myself as a lot of things in this life. I hope to be involved in politics, work for children's rights, maybe a teacher, a mother, and a leader. I realize at nine I can't take a giant role in these goals yet, but that doesn't mean I can't try. They say the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. I think what I want to do most for this one wild and precious life is to always do my part, help others in my community to do their part, and do this with intention every single day, to leave my space better than I arrived to it. If I do my small part and encourage others to do their small part, then we are all working together to make the whole greater. I love being a part of my different communities and I'm always thinking of what I can give back and put a smile on someone's face. One of my talents is being an avid reader. A way, I do, wait, a way that I do my part at school is to help students who struggle with reading. I work with students to practice sight words, help them become more confident readers, and to find books that help them learn to love reading, too. While this is a small part, at age nine, I like to think about how I can grow this task as I get older. Can you think of a book that has inspired you, brought a smile to your face, and made you want to be your best you? Think about it for a second. Yell out loud now what that book was for you. The, book, the first book series that really opened my eyes and inspired me was Harry Potter. If you haven't read it, I won't spoil it for you, but you should read it. My books are everything to me. My mom shared with me a recent research study about children's literacy. Young kids from birth to age five who are read to daily have a vocabulary exposure advantage of over 1.4 million words by age five compared to young kids who aren't read to. I think this is a way I can meet my goal of supporting children. As a reader, it breaks my heart to know that there are probably a lot of children in the world who aren't read to, don't know how to read, and have families that can't afford to buy books or visit the library. I can see my wild and precious self down the road staring at a business that raises money so that we can buy books and get them to children who can't afford them. Confucius said, wherever you go, go with all your heart. To me, this means you can go anywhere as long as you follow your heart. Reading is my heart, and books can take you anywhere you want in your imagination. I feel it's my job to open the world of information, color, magic, romance, and humor to the children who need it in their lives. Another part I play in my community is being part of my local Girl Scout troop. We do a lot of great things giving back to our community. I wanted to find a way to make sure I was doing my part. I came up with an idea last winter to help my community, and it spread pretty quickly. My parents agreed to make a match for every box of cookies I sold. They would purchase one item for our local food pantry, and we would deliver it together. Now I was only eight, so my reach wasn't that far. But my mom posted it for me on social media, and I sold more boxes than I had any year before. Don't worry, this isn't a plug to buy cookies from me this year, but I will be selling and donating again this year if you are interested. I like my role in supporting families and communities to be a part of why I hope to find a way to be involved in politics when I'm old enough, of course. For now, I can donate food to my local pantry. But when I'm older, I have lots of ideas on how I can help people who are homeless, hungry, and in need of help by creating safety through them with laws. These are just a couple of ideas I wanted to share with you about what I want to do with my one wild and precious life. I have a lot of people in my short life who have really inspired me and have always supported my dreams. Number one, my dad. He never stops working. He does that to provide me with opportunities that help me always work towards my dreams. My mom. She always listens to my ideas, even when they're wild, and even when she seems tired of listening to my long stories. She said I was born screaming like a pterodactyl and haven't stopped talking since. (laughs) (laughs) I love hearing that story. My mummy, she has always been there. She used to babysit me before I started kindergarten, and she would read to me, take me to the library, and always help me connect my love of reading to my real world. She and my pop-pop even took me this summer to visit Diagon Alley from Harry Potter in New York, England. It was a trip and experience I will never forget. And I can't forget my pop-pop. He's always there for me and someone I can really talk to. I know he will drop everything from me whenever I need him. I even want to mention my two little brothers. Believe me, it's not always easy, but I do love both of you. (laughs) (laughs) You allow me to mother you and make me look forward to sharing last with my own kids one day. I hope these ideas I have shared from my one wild and precious life inspired you to always think of how you can enrich your own one wild and precious life. If it is true that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, what is the part you'd like to play?
1: Thank you. Hi, I'm Evan Wagman, and I'm, a thir- I'm 13, and I'm a 7th grader at Great Valley Middle School. And this is a combination of what I'm hoping to do with my wild and precious life and what I am doing. Um, at this point in my life, there are so many things important to me that I never thought I'd be remotely into, like cross-country or Boy Scouts, which I definitely want to continue. Um, a couple days ago, my social studies teacher had an assignment for us, a job paper where the goal is to prepare us for jobs after high school. And it's a little project she said we'll do each year till we graduate. And one of the questions really put this in perspective for me, and to quote it, it was, what are your long-term goals? Um, Well, this question really stuck out to me because, to be honest, I haven't thought of anything past high school. And it kind of scared me because the more I thought about it, the more clueless I was on what I wanted to do. I knew that everyone what everyone's expectations are. Go to a pricey college for something important like business and analytics, and get a job that has absolutely nothing to do with it, and spend the next 20 years paying off that student debt. Um, but to be serious, I was truly more scared of people's expectations than it was the question, Um, especially for something like this speech, because I heard multiple people saying this is probably their favorite sermon of the year. (laughs) And for another example, you probably know this, but after you've had a teacher who gets high quality content from you and your peers day after day, his or her expectations start to increase and eventually get to the point where one day, You can't reach those expectations, and that's the day I'm scared of, and probably what is holding me back from doing some things. And to take it back to a way less serious note, you know, that's why my math grades are somewhere in the C range. Um, (laughs) please, Please believe that. Excuse mom, that one took a while. But to move to the way brighter side of things, I definitely knew and do know at least a little of what I want to do short term. As a cross country runner, a better time is always a goal that hopefully isn't that far away, whether a two minute or two second decrease. And as a scout rank, pretty pretty close to tenderfoot rank boy scout, I definitely want eagle at one point. Oh, and completing middle school and high school would be a nice addition to my resume. <laughs> um, but other than that, I'm still pretty clueless on even that. So, nothing is better than the present, and right now you're supposed to start coughing hysterically. Um, Insanely recently, I felt like a weight was put on my back between sports, school, and home responsibilities and other activities because I was suddenly making pretty huge decisions for me and trying to balance the hopeful fine line between those things. When they say this, I'm just suddenly feeling like my free time is shrinking, and my homework is increasing. Um, but to get more into the question of what I want to do with my life, well, one thing is for sure. I want to make an impact on my com- community and those around me. Whether well, doing something like this or serving as a veteran. The main reason I mentioned something such as a veteran is because everyone I've talked to has, who has served has said it left them with a way impact, better impact than they had beforehand. And... Um, and I'm serving for the country. I would be serving for the country. I know it's a cliche, but I'm definitely grateful for the life I have and the places I've been. I've done several awesome things and met some really fantastic people. I personally have a huge bucket list, probably that of several people. And some of the biggest things on it is I would love to go to a concert by my favorite band, which, by the way, is AJR. Um... And on a side note, I've learned from experience, which took place here, that songs sound about a thousand percent better in person. Um, Another thing I would love to do is visit more national parks, more specifically like Redwood Forest and the Grand Canyon, since those are supposed to be awesome. And then one last thing, this is more of a reminder for myself, I'd like to finish my book sometime soon. But in the end all that truly matters to me is that I have a glassful half full attitude and live every day to the fullest.
2: So since I was asked to do this, I've been thinking, what is it that I plan to do with my wild and precious life? And before I started writing, I started asking other people that same question. And the answer I got most was one that I can identify with most on most days. I don't know. It's one of those questions that has no correct answer, and it's hard to put into words until you consider all the possibilities. So while writing this, I did struggle to put into words what my heart wanted to say. I eventually asked myself what did Mary Oliver do when she wrote The Summer Day. She walked through a field and paid attention. Paying attention can be difficult in a hyper-connected world where you are one notification away from being distracted. I grew up in Indiana. Rural life has a little less distractions even now when you can barely get cell phone service. But I do remember paying attention at an early age. My dad was an electronics engineer. He noticed when I was paying attention while he was fixing a VCR that somebody broke, and he included me on what he was doing. He would obtain computers through work, and my career in information technology began at a very early age. His paying attention to my curiosity helped shape me into the person I am. My mom was born in Italy and came to America just after marrying my dad. She stayed home to take care of my sisters and me, showering us with love. She learned how to read English while we were learning how to read from books. I remember when she eventually went to work and we would go visit her and she would always notice when we would eye a certain toy and she made sure we had it. She always made sure we didn't want for anything, especially love. My parents taught me the value of loving your children and providing for them. Through the good and bad, my parents' experiences helped shape my sisters and me into the people we are today. When I was 20, I left my family uh, out of Indiana to come here to Pennsylvania. Leaving them behind was a very difficult decision, but I was starting a future with my wife, Leah. Our first year of living together was a very special time. We were just two of us with our two cats and there was a lot of love, but there was also conflict when two people come together to learn how to live together. I learned that I needed to pay attention to her needs, how to clean, how to cook for each other, how to fold laundry. I'm still learning the right way to fold a towel. (laughs) The most important thing I learned how to do was to pay attention to my emotions during these conflicts. We were supposed to be fighting a problem, not each other. Within a few years of living together, we found that we were expecting a baby. Leah and I prepared on what to expect, but nothing can prepare you for the real thing. It's like someone said, here's your baby. It didn't come with instruction manuals, but good luck and have fun. This child relies on you and needs all your attention. And the first few months felt like a blur of diapers, bottles, and burping. And then the best thing ever happened. My daughter laughed. What made it even better is she was laughing at these silly monkey noises that I was making. I kept doing it, and she kept laughing even harder. I was so overcome with emotion that I started crying. If there are moments I could live in forever, it's those moments when my children first laugh. They were no longer these eating, grunting, pooping machines. (laughs) They were paying attention to the world and the world around them and finding the fun in it. As they continue to grow, I notice how we have all changed. They are different, Leah is different, and I am different. We are always changing, which is both beautiful and difficult to accept. My desire is that they would be little forever and we could protect them from all our fears. As parents, we have no choice but to watch them grow up. We can't stop time, but we can choose to pay attention as it happens. This became very relevant to me after a conversation I had with my dad. He was feeling the pangs of nostalgia, remembering moments from our childhood and missing us when we were little. He mentioned the song Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapman. The song is about a father and his son. In the first verse, the father talks about how the child just arrived. But he never saw his first steps, and he was off working, so he never even got to hear him talk for the first time. In the second verse, the boy turns 10. The son receives a ball from his father, and the boy asks him if he can teach him to catch. And the father says, not today, I got a lot to do. The son says, that's okay, and walked away with a smile and said, I'm going to be like him one day. In the third verse, the son comes home from college. The father, being so impressed with the man he's become, wants him to sit a while so they can chat. But the son has his own plans and asks his dad for the car keys instead. And then in the final verse, the father is now retired and the son's moved away. The father calls his son and says he wants to get together. The son says he can't find the time. The new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu, but it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. As the father hung up the phone, it finally occurred to him the boy grew up to be just like him. I listen to that song quite often as a reminder to myself to pay attention. For my father, he's lived his life to the end of the song. His boy grew up to be just like him, and we're always looking to find the time to see each other. I'm living my life somewhere in the second verse. Our daughter will be a teen soon, and the boys will be ten. Sometimes they want to include me in their world, and sometimes they want to be in my world. I want to live my life where they include me as much as they will have me. I know one day there will come a time when they won't be living with us. And while I like the idea of a cleaner, quieter house, I want it to be filled with their presence until they are ready to go live their wild and precious lives. Until then, what will I do with my wild and precious life? I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to coach my son's basketball team. I'm going to listen when my daughter talks to me about her life. And when Leah wants to decorate for Christmas before Thanksgiving, I'm going to be Buddy the Elf, despite the grinch of me saying it's too early. I'm going to let my career fulfill me. I'm going to pet our animals when they come for affection. I'm going to pick up my guitar and sing my favorite songs. I'm going to learn new skills, and maybe I'll perfect some of them. I'm going to succeed, and I'm going to fail. I'm going to celebrate, and I'm going to mourn. I'm going to live, and I'm going to die. I'm going to do all these things and more, paying attention each moment along the way. And if I'm blessed to see another summer day, I will fall into the grass and say hello to the grasshopper. I will watch as she flings herself from blade to blade, marveling at both of our improbable existence. I only get one wild and precious life, and that sounds like a good way to live it. Thank you.
3: Um, I'm Eli, my pronouns are she and they. I've been coming to Wells Springs for almost 10 years, and while this is not my first time up here, it's my first time that I've been asked to speak on this special day, so thank you for having me. When I look back at myself making my way through the first four decades of my life, I see a person in perpetual theater camp. Not literally, of course. I've never actually been on a stage except this one, but metaphorically speaking, I spent the first part of my life taking on scripts, stories that other people had written, and acting them out. Talk about expectations, right, Evan? There were times when I caught myself wondering when I was gonna have the opportunity to write my own story, wondering when I would know what I was supposed to be or do. But life unfolded quickly as I played the role, the dutiful role of child and then adolescent, student and then professional, partner and then parent, And it was important to me that I get all of my parts just right. So that took up a lot of my energy and I just kept moving forward. As trauma entered my life, my stories became a literal lifeline. As long as I knew where to stand and what to say, then I would stay alive. Later, as goodness and joy entered my life, the stories became something shiny and right to hold up that joy as if to say, look, I've beautiful and heartbreaking stories. I'm worthy of this joy. But here's the thing. Even when the stories were literally the only thing keeping me alive and even as they became all I had to show, they weren't ever mine. This realization hit me in 2013 when my mom became terminally ill. I was 39 years old. There was so much to this time in our lives, obviously, but for now, I just want you to know two things. One, My mom was the first and among the most influential scriptwriters of my life. And two, the idea of losing her was as destabilizing as it was devastating. Her presence in my life meant there would always be another script. But now what? She lived with cancer for four years, and I lived with a knot in my chest and a lump in my throat. I kept asking myself over and over, Who would I be when I woke up the morning after she died? I'd never been me without her. But one day the answer came, as it so often does, in a whisper to myself on a run through the woods near her house. What if you can just be you? What if the time has finally come to write your own story? I knew this was right. Terrifying and exhilarating, but right. I found myself wondering what secrets I could finally stop keeping and what performances finally could end once and for all. I held my mom in my arms when she died three years ago this March, and a part of me died too. And then another part was born, and that's the part I want to tell you about today. I've come up with just a few things so far that are totally true about me, it's not a script, it's just some thoughts in relative rough draft form, but I'd love to share them with you. So what will I do with one, my one wild and precious life? Take it away, Mike, I think it's quote time, there you go, nice, good job. Um, <laughs> it starts with me telling you who I am. Quite simply, if you ask me to open myself up to you, I will. Gone are the days of deflection and performance, management of expectations, and totally unsolicited, unsolicited caretaking. I'm just going to show up and give you this gift of trusting you with who I am. This is a level of vulnerability I didn't even know I was capable of until recently, and it's a gift for me and for you. <laughs> so cute. Second, and related, I'm going to take up some space. For me, this means using my voice and my body and my energy to be seen and to be heard, accurately. Please know I don't need the accuracy for your sake. I want it for mine, for the first time. It's gonna feel loud in all the places I've tried to stay quiet, and it's gonna feel big in all of the ways I've tried to stay small. And I know that taking up this space might make people feel uncomfortable. I might even lose some of my people along the way. But even this doesn't terrify me anymore in the ways that it once did. And it's snowing. Yeah, it is. That's so awesome. Yay! Sorry, need a little humor break there. Finally, and most importantly, I'm going to be present for you in a new way. Specifically, I'm gonna be so completely myself in hopes that you will feel safe to do the same. From this new place, it's impossible not to see you in a new and different light, right? Who are you? What are your stories? What can we show each other? What is true in our relationship? I know that sounds all warm and fuzzy and awesome, but this part's kind of tricky. Why? Well, I'm asking something big of you. I'm asking you to show up for yourself so that you can come to me with all of your real You may not be there yet, and that's okay. I'll wait for you. In the meantime, I'll hear your small talk, and I'll enjoy your company, but when the time comes for you to choose to take your own space to allow me to see all of you, I'm going to be so there. We'll stand with each other, we'll believe in each other, and we'll learn from each other. John and I are practicing this very thing in our marriage right now. Practicing might be too pretty of a word. (laughs) We are slogging and thrashing, if you want to know the truth. We have quite a mess on our hands as we try to figure out where to stand and what to say and explain it all to each other at the same time, like two very different directors trying to simultaneously direct the same play. And still... We have a life to to live, and bills to pay, and a dog to train, and a gorgeous child to love. That's you, bud. All while just trying to take a minute every now and then to ask, wait, what did you just say? I think that was important. Say it again. And we're still going to miss so much of it, but we're trying. We end each day by the other side, the world around us and within us shifting, and still we try. We try. We stand with each other, we believe in each other, and we learn from each other. We are stronger this way. We can all be stronger this way. And that's what I've got so far. I'm all done performing. There's no more script. I will own the brilliant performances that brought me to this precipice, and I will salute them as I jump off the edge, leaving them all behind. You see, that's the wild of it for right now, the jump. The jump means faith and trust and courage. For as long as it takes to fall away from what was, I will be wild and let myself fall. The precious part is where I will eventually land, which truly remains to be seen. So invite me back up here in another 10 years, and I will happily tell you all about it. Thanks for listening.
4: Good morning. My name is Lauren Geary. And uh, I'm absolutely delighted to be standing before you this morning um, to participate in the One Wild and Precious Life service. I always love this service, as I know many of you do, um, because members of our congregation come up here and speak so honestly. And in so doing, leave themselves vulnerable. And I've so appreciated that. One of the reasons I find Wellsprings so invigorating is the fact that it asks the big questions. What do I plan to do with my one wild and precious life? Right, the big question. How do I want to live? What is most important to me? I am the representative of the 50-somethings. It so happens I'm on the later side of that decade. I'm 57. When I try to envision my future life, something that's never really been my strong suit, I'm of course guided by what has come already and uh, I wanna tell you a little bit about my history. Um, I'm an older mother. I married for the second time at age 38, just one month shy of 39. I had a successful career and I had not yet had children. 50 years ago when my mother was having children, there was much less of a choice about having children. It was something that women did. It was just, you know, they it wasn't considered so much. Um, but now it's much more of a choice, and we know that women who do not have children lead valuable and meaningful lives. But for me, I knew that if I did not have children, I would it would be incomplete for me. My life would feel incomplete if I did not have children. Although my husband, Stephen, already had two children when we married, he was completely on board with having more children, and we were delighted at the thought of having children that would be born of our love. So, of course, I was starting late, and I suspected that we would need every advantage that medical science could offer us, and we did need every advantage that medical science could offer us. It wasn't long before we were under the care of a reproductive endocrinologist, and that's the kind of physician that one sees if one is serious about becoming pregnant. And so we started down the path. When you are trying to become pregnant, and it's difficult for you, it's a cycle of hoping fervently and waiting and imagining. And then it's followed. I I get emotional even thinking about it. And then it's followed by heartbreak every time it doesn't happen. I can go back there in an instant. And then you try again. And then you hope and you imagine and you wait and then your heart is broken again. So this went on for years. Infertility treatment is not inexpensive and as you can see the emotional toll is staggering. So for years, I was really on the outside of motherhood, this thing I wanted so dearly. And I remember feeling like I was less of a woman because of it, because it seemed to me that this was something that my body should be able to do, and mine couldn't or wouldn't. And I knew intellectually that that was not true, but my intellectual self could not convince my emotional self. And there were many failed attempts, and I was not happy. (sighs) I remember trying to look at my many blessings in life, my husband, whom I loved so deeply, and my friends and my work, my family, but this one aspect of my life seemed to overshadow all the other blessings that I so clearly and certainly possessed. So we kept trying, Stephen and I, And eventually, when I was 42 years old, it happened. We had a baby boy, and we were joyful, and I was over the moon. I was a mother, and in some ways, when I became a mother, I felt as if my life started anew. The thing that had been denied to me all this time was now mine. I was no longer on the outside looking in. I remember one afternoon uh, after our son was born, I was shopping, I was in a store, and I had him in a stroller, and there was a child in the store with his mother, and he pointed to us and said, look, mommy, a baby, and there's his mother, and that child was talking about me, you know, I was the mother, and that was my baby. I'm going to try and stop (laughs) now. Amazingly, the very next year, when I was just one month shy of 44, we had twins. Boys, so our cup runneth over. Now we had three babies. Our oldest was only 15 months old when our younger boys were born. One of my fondest memories is when the twins were infants. And I would, when I was feeding them, I would sit on the floor with my back up against the couch and I'd have an infant in a car seat on either side of me and I would have a bottle in each hand, like feeding them. And then my toddler son would come and sit on my lap and suck his thumb. And I couldn't, you know, move. I couldn't get up to go to the bathroom. I couldn't scratch my nose. And it was great. Coming to motherhood at the age I did forced me to think about why I wanted to be a parent so very much. It didn't just happen for me. So as a result, there was no part of me that took it for granted. I saw and I see what a true privilege it is. And now my eldest is 14 and my younger sons are 13. So remember, I'm 57. And while my peers are mostly empty nesters, my husband and I are just entering the teen years with our boys. What will I do with my one wild and precious life? Firstly, I'm gonna continue to, with my husband, I'm gonna continue to guide my children towards adulthood and help them blossom into the fullness of whomever they can be. Each age has brought new challenges and new joys as I have watched them grow from infants all the way to the teens that they are today. And I will continue to struggle with the challenges and revel in the joys of tomorrow, of what tomorrow brings to me. The boys are vastly different from each other. I will try to meet the needs of these very different children. And I will resist the temptation to parent the way that I was parented. I don't say that in any way to criticize my own parents, but I think that the default... Setting is to do what your own parents would have done in any given situation. I want to continually remind myself to examine what kind of parent I want to be and carry that out in my day-to-day life. Clearly, retiring early is not in the cards for me. So I will continue to work, and I will find meaning in knowing that what I do matters. I'd like to see more of the world with my husband and my boys. I'm not likely to do something on the world stage, and I think probably not even on the local stage for that matter, but I'm going to try to be truly present. I'm going to try to appreciate the beauty in my life and understand that the struggles may highlight my joys. Finally, I'm going to try to make a positive difference in the lives of those around me. Thank you.
5: Good morning. My name is Fred Kaufman, and I'm a 64 year old PK, PGS times two, PN, and PC. You see, I'm a preacher's kid. My father was a minister. I am twice a preacher's grandson. My father's father was a minister, and my mother's father was a minister. I'm a preacher's nephew. My father's oldest brother was a minister and I am a preacher's cousin. My uncle's son was an ordained minister who went into counseling. Sounds kind of familiar. But as for me, I suppose I was the black sheep of the family. When I was a little boy, I frequently was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? My answer? either a minister or a farmer. The end result, I became the director of the largest and busiest inner city emergency department in Philadelphia. (laughs) But I'm jumping ahead of myself. Being raised as a PK in a small town church community by loving and caring parents, the foundation of my faith and value structure was established at a young age. I was not raised with dogma and strict ritual. Rather, I was raised in a family and tradition where love, music, joy, reason, caring outreach and respect were valued core beliefs. But it was a small town and my experiences were somewhat limited in that sense. So, after high school, I made the lengthy trek to college, Dickinson College, a block and a half from the church parsonage, to be (laughs) exact. It was at Dickinson in my freshman year that I met the most beautiful person in the world. She was bright, pretty, with a fun-loving laugh, and her name was Wendy. And she was a Unitarian Universalist, Before I knew it, I was absolutely certain that I wanted to marry her. It took a bit more time for her to be convinced of the same. (laughs) But a year after graduation from college and a year into medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, Wendy and I were married, a Protestant PK to a UU in an Episcopal church. (laughs) But that's a story for another day. Life was good. I finished medical school and began my residency at Temple University Hospital, eventually joining the faculty at Temple and specializing in emergency medicine. Wendy earned her MBA from Wharton. And just to be sure we were busy enough, we started our family with the birth of Elizabeth. Soon thereafter, becoming outnumbered by our children, Elizabeth, Vanessa, Benjamin, and Madeline. I climbed the academic ladder of success, Wendy consulted on Wall Street and with Core States Bank in Philadelphia. And then our world as we knew it came crashing down. In December of 1996, I began experiencing bizarre and quite worrisome symptoms. On January 7, 1997, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Before that time, I had experienced, in very intimate detail, unimaginable pain and suffering. Every day in the emergency department, I lived the world of pain and suffering. Patients suffering from asthma, sickle cell disease, domestic violence, tuberculosis, AIDS, drug overdose, gunshots and stabbings, cardiac arrest, broken bones, and broken spirits. But this is not just a list of situations I experienced. Rather, I carry with me the specific individuals for whom I tried to ease their pain and suffering. For decades, I have carried with me their names, their ages, their faces. I will carry them with me in my heart for as long as I live. Until January 7th, 1997, I had lived a privileged and fortunate life, but almost in the blink of an eye, my good fortune gave way to my own pain and suffering, experienced not only by me, but by my beloved wife and family as well. I began treatment for MS almost immediately, out of fear, but not realizing that this disease is a marathon, not a sprint. Within three months, I could no longer work. I could no longer get to the bathroom without assistance from Wendy. I could no longer read or watch television. I could no longer even face talking to my parents on the phone. The treatment proved far worse than the disease, and it was Wendy who pulled me out of despair and got me the medical help that I needed. As I slowly improved, I began to read a bit. The first book I read was one that Wendy got me called The Gifts of Suffering by Polly Young-Eisendrath. One morning, while I was reading in bed, four-year-old Benjamin bounded into the room and said, Daddy, what you doing? I replied, reading a book. Benjamin asked, what's it called? I answered, The Gifts of Suffering. Then replied, that's a funny name for a book, and off he went to play. <laughs> yes, that does seem like a funny name for a book, and in fact, subsequent editions are titled The Resilient Spirit. But page 123 of that book made a profound impact on me and my recovery. Suffering provides the motivation for making a radical change that is needed. But that motivation in itself is not enough for new growth to take place. There also must be the right situation and the courage to seize the opportunity. The courage to seize the opportunity. Polly young Eisendrath also states, our pain is our path to spiritual enlightenment. The weeks, months, and years following my diagnosis were indeed quite painful. Wendy suffered, the children suffered, I suffered. I lost my job, Wendy and I lost financial security, and because of the pain and anger swirling around, very nearly lost our marriage. The children lost physical and emotional stability but I dare say that it has been the courage to seize the opportunity that has been the source of our resilience. We have all, in our own ways, found the ability to transform our lives from pain and suffering to gratitude and divine grace. Speaking for myself, what is it about MS that has allowed me to be grateful? Because of MS... I took Benjamin and Madeline to the bus stop every morning and was at home when they arrived home from school every afternoon. Because of MS, I met Clay Walker, a member of the same MS club, and we discussed our lives as fathers. Because of MS, I became friends with Dawn Staley, a three-time Olympic gold medalist, and worked on her behalf in her foundation in North Philadelphia. Because of MS, I became involved with Help Hope Live, a national nonprofit based in Radnor, which assists individuals who have undergone organ transplants or suffered catastrophic injuries with grassroots fundraising to cover uninsured medical expenses. But most importantly, because of MS, Over time and with the help of therapists and mostly my dear wife, I have been able to open my heart and be present at some of life's most challenging yet beautiful moments. Perhaps the most meaningful of these moments, for me personally, surrounded the death of my father. My sisters and I spent the last three weeks of dad's life with him at his bedside. What I experienced was an individual totally at peace, who simply by his very being emanated love. He had prepared his whole life for this moment in time, not by figuring out all of the specific things that he wanted in the time leading up to his passing, but rather by preparing how to be at this time. The night of his passing, as I returned home to my beloved family, I felt totally incapable of articulating what my experience had been. But one phrase came to me, a phrase that has returned to me over and over again since that time, divine grace. One year later, in the equivalent of a springboard held at our prior church, I wrote my credo statement. Credo, I believe, is a powerful notion that goes back to my parental and spiritual upbringing. It need not be dogmatic and certainly it need not be static. But credo is a notion that is essential to my ability to answer Mary Oliver's question. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? I believe that birth, life, and death are universal to us all and thereby sacred and holy experiences which necessitate that we answer Mary Oliver's question. I believe that by paying attention to life around us in all of its pain and glory and by our willingness to live in each moment, however joyful or painful it might be, we begin to understand the notion of prayer and experience the holy in our lives. I believe that divine grace is not something offered to us that we do not deserve, but rather it is something offered to us that makes us more open to all that is sacred, all that is holy. And I believe, as noted by Peter Weiner in a New York Times op-ed entitled The Power of Grace, that grace properly understood always produces gratitude. So what do I plan to do with my one wild and precious life? I plan to live each moment as best I can with an acceptance and acknowledgement of what is, fully understanding that at times I will not live up to my own personal expectations. But I will strive to be forgiving. I will strive to be compassionate. I will strive to reach out to the oppressed. I will strive to bring all of humanity into my heart. And I will strive to be the best friend, husband, father, and grandfather that I can be to those whom I love so dearly, to those who have loved and supported me during all of my times of pain suffering and imperfection and in whom i find inspiration for all that is my life i give thanks for it is my life that opens my heart to divine grace so may it be amen good morning
6: I'm blessed and honored to have this opportunity to think about what I want to do with my one wild and precious life. And I promise you, Fred and I did not, did not commiserate on this. <laughs> We're just in those decades, I think. Uh, when I was invited to speak, the first thing I did was I read the poem again because I wanted to be sure I understood the poem. And what struck me is that What do I wanna do with my wild and precious life is the last line of the poem and yet it's the one that seems to resonate. I then thought about what my life looks like now and what I would like to change. My 97 year old dad became my inspiration for this talk. He's currently living with me following a fall which has impacted his life, his independence primarily. It has been difficult watching him attempt to navigate his new reality and try to live his best life. And at the same time, it has provided me an opportunity to think about my own wild and precious life. My response to myself as I thought this through was I want to do more leaning in toward the light, rolling with it, and being ready to accept joy whenever it comes. As you can see, my favorite parts of our Sunday service are the songs, (laughs) the lyrics which match perfectly with the message always, and with my moods and emotions quite frequently. I pondered this question carefully and had many ideas about how I wanted to share my thoughts. Suddenly one very early morning, which seems to be when things come to me, the serenity prayer, a prayer written by the American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, came to mind. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. With my wild and precious life, I want to accept the things I cannot change. I want to lean in and roll with it. I want to accept whatever comes with grace and dignity. This is not in my DNA. But I very much want it to be. I have no trouble with the courage to change the things I can but I want to develop the wisdom to know the difference. I am a fixer. I see a situation, I size it up, and my first instinct is to fix it, often in the process making my life more difficult. I am my father's daughter, after all. With my one wild and precious life, I want to listen more, talk less. Accept the changes that come with age, with grace and dignity. I want to have the wisdom to know when I need courage. I want to be a patient daughter, mother, grandmother, and friend. I want, like Mary Oliver, to observe the wonder, beauty, and miracles happening all around me. Because if not now, when? Be more my mother's daughter than my father's daughter. I want to engage more in those childhood activities that brought me joy, like taking a nap without worrying about wasting time, eating cookies without thinking of the calories, working less and playing more. I want to have the serenity to accept the challenges that are coming, the courage to make changes I need to, and the wisdom to know the difference. No matter what, however, I am looking forward to the rest of my wild and precious lives. The first seven decades were overall pretty darn good, so I plan to roll with it and see what the next seven bring. Thank you.
7: Good morning, wild and special audience. In January, I slipped into this decade full of optimism. Not long after, the parts department advised me that I needed a valve job in order to pass inspection. (laughs) So since April, a fresh aortic bovine valve is regulating proper blood flow. Therefore, I have confidence my wild and precious life will continue with vigor. (laughs) Looking back, I really think this journey started after my retirement 15 years ago. That's when you have the freedom to examine what's really important. Wanting to contribute more to the world around me, I took a job as a van driver for Creative Health in Pottstown. That was driving for Creative Health eight to 10 people with schizophrenia, obsessive-compulsive and bipolar mental afflictions. I would take them in the morning four hours of therapy and take them back home. Wow. To understand that their world was quite enlightening. I must have learned something because after a few months they were calling me the van therapist. <laughs> a special note, a special van driver who had serious schizophrenia trusted me in some tough times. 10 years later, I still get on my answering machine, Ron, this is your old buddy Larry. Hey, if you wanna talk, give me a call. And so we do. For the past seven years, I've been teaching English as a second language to undocumented Mexican families and citizens. To experience years of listening to and observing the effects of mental health and the life of undocumented families has put my personal privilege into a very humbling perspective. Last Christmas, my terrific daughter presented me with a small book called My Dad. There's a lot of questions and a lot of blank pages for my answers. After the early stuff, two questions lead me into the future. What does success, what does success mean to you? And how have you been successful? 30 years ago, I probably measured that with income, car, house, job level, position, achievements. I still haven't answered this in the book. There was words of wisdom spaced through this My God, My Dad book. One from... Jim Hansen says, kids don't remember what you try to teach them. They remember who you are. So to project and plan my wild and precious life for at least the coming decade, words like gratitude, forgiveness, love, and happiness will surround me. I have sought in the past 15 years to understand the world around me. I've become more vulnerable and try to make a difference with those I encounter, trying trying to find the good in everything. So, segmenting my life into decades, I am fortunate to be here in Wellsprings for the past 10 years. first met Thich Nhat Hanh here which is why washing dishes and vacuuming gives me calm pleasure (laughs) our religion asks that we find pieces and chunks of truth in all, all religions I have found bits of wisdom and every unique person here. Which is why being involved in hospitality is very rewarding to me every Sunday morning. So, this coming decade of my wild and precious life will be spent here. Keep Spinning out those pieces of wisdom, I'll be the sponge. Thank you.
8: I invite you all to take a moment, perhaps to close your eyes, to simply rest in your chair, and to join me in a spirit of prayer. Holy presence, God of each of our hearts and understanding. One of the great gifts of this life is that whatever you are, whatever mystery is out there that creates us and calls to us, you speak to each of us in our own language. You've created each of us to be exactly ourselves. And it is one of the great gifts and graces of this life that we get to share who we are with each other, that none of us has to do it alone, that none of us has to have it all figured out. I am grateful that in this space we do that. We practice showing up and being ourselves with and for each other. And so today with gratitude for the prayers I've spoken aloud and for the prayers each one of these people is carrying on their hearts. We say amen.